Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner and co-founder of Rickaroons, a coconut energy bar company in San Diego. Six years after starting in my dad's kitchen and selling at our local farmer's market, I was ready for 2020 to finally be the year to see revenue triple, sell the company, and be in the Bahamas by Christmas. Hint, that is not what happened. Instead, I'm just trying to keep the lights on and figure out what to do with 50,000 Rickaroons that were supposed to be sold at Costco roadshows, coffee shops, and found in Silicon Valley office snack drawers. So rather than go through this alone, I created this show as a shoulder for my fellow small business owners to cry on, to remind everyone that you are not alone in your COVID struggles. Each show, we interview a small business owner about the impacts COVID is having on their business and the humans that run it. So let's get started, beginning with our fun fact. Yay! Today's fun fact is about the first time I ever spoke with today's guest, Willow Hill. I was telling her about the episode of the podcast, How I Built This, with the founders of Airbnb and how it inspired me to create this whole podcast series to showcase the harsh realities of entrepreneurship that usually gets glossed over. I said something about how unrealistic it was to go from a few months of debt to basically overnight billionaires. Without missing a beat, she laughed and said something to the effect that she was actually one of their early staff who helped with their public messaging and brand story. Glad I didn't put my foot too far in my mouth, but as any consistent listeners know, it's my general opinion that the media tends to glamorize entrepreneurship without giving the full story of the hardships along the way. How I Built This is one of my favorite podcasts, but sometimes I feel like it's the Sparknotes version of a hike, told from the peak of the mountain, and this show, Small Biz Gone Viral, concentrates on the altitude sickness, false trails, and ants in your trail mix. The very real, very difficult struggles along the way, made worse by the uncertainty of if you'll even make it to the top. Facts and figures time, August 4th, 2020. Unemployment has dropped each of the past three months and is down to 10.2%. So momentum is good, though keep in mind that's still the highest unemployment rate since the early 80s. Roughly 1.2 million people filed initial unemployment claims last week. Glass half full, that's the lowest since mid-March. Half empty, that would have been record-shattering prior to mid-March. The U.S. has roughly 37% of the world's 6 million active COVID cases and 23% of its total deaths, surpassing 160,000. Keep in mind that we have just a little over 4% of the world's population. Glimmer of hope, though, the survivability rate is continuing to increase, which means if you do get COVID, the likelihood of you surviving is getting better by the day. As for the stock market, the NASDAQ hit an all-time high, The market continues its remarkable recovery in spite of huge unemployment numbers and uncertainty everywhere except the boardroom of Zoom and Clorox. Last thing before the interview, I've added a bonus segment at the end of every episode with a lightning round of quick questions for the guest about their entrepreneurial experience. My guest today is Willow Hill, co-founder and chief creative officer of Scout Lab a New York-based creative agency that helps purpose-driven brands find their voice. She's worked with some huge brands like Adidas, Airbnb, and Wix, uses her power for good in the nonprofit space, and is basically just crushing life. Remember to stick around to the very end of the episode for a quick bonus with Willow's favorite and least favorite parts of entrepreneurship and a 30-second summary of what your brand should be doing. Willow, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, well, probably not as uh, excited as I am to have you on the show for so many reasons. Uh, first of all, from looking at your website, I probably need your services, but can't afford them. So that means we really need to be efficient with the next 45 minutes. Um, in the intro I read that you gave me, Scout Lab is a creative agency that builds purpose-driven brands. Uh, let's start by just unpacking that a little bit and having you put that in layman's terms. So when we started Scout Lab, um, we're actually going on year four now, but back in 2017, we started with the thesis that brands really have a massive ability to impact culture. And 
that most of them are not truly using that opportunity in a way that's meaningful, in a way that drives their brand forward, or in a way that drives society forward. So starting with that kind of thesis, we created the company that is today Scout Lab. Another reason is, you know, when you look at the way that our society is structured, things like politics can take a really long time to create any sort of meaningful impact. Whereas, you know, the way that you you vote with your your dollar and your wallet can actually have an immediate impact. We see it now with you know things as pervasive as cancel culture. Uh, brands are being really asked to show up in a more meaningful way than they ever have before, and that's really what we mean by purpose driven. It's that authenticity of, of meaning and building from that kind of core center. So you're not going to work with every brand or for, with, with every company that, that would like to enlist your services, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, we, have, we definitely have a strong list of no's. We're very specific about the types of brands that we want to support. And we say we, you know, we'll, we'll work with a range of types of companies, but it's always about making sure that, one, the founders are uh, truly in a place that we kind of respect and see eye to eye on. And then secondly, that the product and the service is on the somewhere on the right side of history. I love it. That that's incredible. I mean, if if only if only everyone had that same perspective. So essentially, essentially, you will not sell your soul. And it sounds like you made the right move just now. Uh, you moved from the city of selling your soul for <laughs> for many dollars of New, of New York City to Portland, right? Yeah, I'm actually I'm in the Portland area. Um, up actually in Vancouver for a bit. We had to really just get out of New York with how intense it got with COVID and wanted to have a little bit more space, a little more nature around. And I, I will say that that particular region ha- holds a special place in my heart as a uh, serious ice cream connoisseur because it is, of course, home to Salt and Straw, uh, unofficial unsponsor of the show. Salt and Straw, if you want to throw a couple pints this way, uh, feel free. So you've created this company now uh, that is obviously doing really well. Can you tell me just a little bit about your personal background and kind of what prepared you to co-found a company to go out on your own and to lead? And also, I guess, how many employees do you have? Uh, We're around 10 people right now. Okay, so 10 people right now. So what prepared you to like take that big giant leap and go out on your own? I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Really from an early age, it was something that I really felt that I had in me. I knew that I wanted to have a company at some point. I just didn't know necessarily what that would look like. And then early on in my career, I was really fortunate enough to work kind of front and center to watching Joe, Nate, and Brian of Airbnb build Airbnb while it was still a startup. And that experience for me, I think was just really powerful in understanding how to build a business. You know, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And you know, what, what are the hardships to being at a company that's scaling at that uh, rate is definitely a unique experience that I can give a lot of credit to when I look at how I, I've worked to build out my own team and, you know, the, the way that we show up in our, our clients' lives as well is, is very much inspired from my experience at Airbnb. And when you were at Airbnb, where was that uh, in terms of your career? Was that your first job out of school or... It was, uh, so it was probably my, I will call it my second or third job. Uh, previously, I was also at uh, Red Bull for a time. And then I was also at uh, another agency, actually. So I had early on, actually in school, read a book by, uh, I would call a pro- prolific brand uh, builder, Scott Bedbury. And I read his book. It's called A New Brand World. So for the book definitely you should should read it if it's of interest uh, but he branded nike and starbucks so he took starbucks from kind of this corner coffee shop to what it is today and then worked on just do it and have this incredible perspective on how brands can change culture and when i read that book it really inspired me to uh, work for him <laughs> i just like I, I that was uh, i knew that what i wanted to do and i had the opportunity after you know uh, applying and pushing and pushing to eventually go and work for him and learn what I know about brand under him and working for that agency. So that was also really helpful to kind of see firsthand true brand leadership and get that kind of mentorship early on in my career to set me up for some of the challenges that I would face later on. It seems like from an outsider, at least, that going to work for a company like Red Bull 
would be like going to the to the Harvard or or Brown of the world of of creative uh, advertising of you know, brand building essentially. Is 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 that true? I believe that's absolutely true. Okay. Yes, yep. I, I think you nailed it. I, you know, I grew up with with actually a single mom, and uh, you know, I was working, but from, by the time I was fifteen, sixteen. And by the time I was in college, I was working almost full time, multiple jobs, and ended up getting a job at Red Bull early on, working on events and all these different launches. And it was one of the most incredible eye opening experiences. Which is funny because now I don't even I don't even drink Red Bull anymore. But that makes I have sense. so much I think, respect. I think most of us grow out of that phase. Yeah, <laughs> we grew out of the taurine <laughs> injection straight to the soul at some point. But it was just such a good education in how to truly build a brand rooted in culture rather than rooted in product and getting to see that firsthand and build on that. Um, you know, we, we launched Red Bull Media House while I was there in market, which was a really interesting time to see a CPG company move into the space of becoming a media company. And I was working on things like social media when MySpace was still around. So it was definitely a wild time, and I do attribute a lot of what I've been able to build in my life uh, around the kind of concept of brand to Red Bull. Yeah, what an experience to have at such an uh, early, like fo formative point in your career. Uh, it's incredible. So, actually, before we move on, we, we have to touch on what uh, is our fun fact of the show, which was when you and I were doing our first kind of meet and greet over Zoom. Uh, I told you one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I felt like how it, it shows like how I built this kind of painted this unfair, like unrealistic perspective of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And I, of course, gave the example that I always do, which is when they had the guys from uh, from Airbnb on and they're like, oh, man, we like we had some some debt. And I remember specifically they talk about how we had the uh, like the baseball card collector sheet and we had that full of credit cards and it was crazy. And then South by Southwest happened and now we're billionaires. And I was like, that is not what happens in the real world. Like that is that they they call them unicorns for a reason. And you were like, uh, yeah, that's uh, that was that was me doing the messaging there. I, I I was one of those people. I was like, oh right, 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 right. Well, still, it's true. But I just thought that was like so funny that like the, literally the example that I give every single time, it was you. So like that was you doing like so much impactful work to help create such like a pervasive brand. Uh, that is everywhere uh, and everyone knows it like around the world now, pretty much. It is interesting. I think a founder's story is always going to be an important part of any sort of brand narrative with Joe, Nate and Brian there, there actually is so much depth, depth to that story. And I think to say, Oh, you know, overnight there were billionaires is not necessarily a good assessment because they do highlight the trough of sorrow and like all of the kind of deep experiences that they went to to get to where they were. It just might not be something that you can really totally capture and fit into a segment like that. But right. certainly I, I love that, that you're willing and ready to go into the nitty gritty of, of all of it. Oh, that's what the, this show is all about, that trough of sorrow. That was actually an alternate show title. That's a great title. <laughs> trough of sorrow. <laughs> All right, maybe that'll be the the sequel or the spinoff of, of of this show. Uplifting uh, podcast. Yeah, let's go ahead and move on to basically painting a picture of what your pre of, of what your twenty twenty expectations were pre before COVID became a thing, and you were in the the American epicenter of of COVID. So we use March first on this show as kind of like the the day one of COVID in America. And for most of us, it didn't really start impacting us to like mid-March, end of March. But for you in New York, obviously, like absolute epicenter. So before we get to how it actually affected your, your company, start with just where did you see the company going this year? What were kind of some of your bigger objectives, uh, headcount size, expansion, growth, et cetera? So moving into 2020, we had an interesting perspective because we had been in Tel Aviv, we had been in Paris, we were working with clients in different places around the world and had the really the fortune of seeing some of this stuff happening early on because a lot of other uh, news channels were picking it up. So we were really paying close attention and 
as soon as we got back to New York, it was very quick before we turned around, were able to get out of our lease and uh, just very quickly decided that we were going to get out of our office space for the, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, at the time we had planned on re upping or finding a new office in June, I believe was our date. We said, uh, we're going to all work from home for a little bit just to be cautious. You know, this might seem crazy, which at the time it kind of did. It was yeah. like, oh, are you sure? Yeah. No, we have such short term, sh such short term memories. I feel like we all forget what it was like. I mean, yeah, it seemed crazy to, oh, we're going to work from home for a whole month. What are you insane? And now it seems like, yeah, of course, obviously. Well, and now it seems like June was obviously very, very conservative um, because ultimately we're we're looking at another year out before I think it's truly safe to ask people to go back into an office space, especially considering that, you know, due to COVID, we don't have any type of real vaccination, which is what we're thinking about. But I guess so. Th that was maybe the first thing that was an expectation that was kind of immediately drawn back was actual our actual physical space. Now the financial implications and the actual impact of that came, definitely came later within the first few months of 2020. You know, we were really on a, a strong growth track that we were super excited about, which evidently slowed um, as I know it has with most businesses. For us, I would say it was, it dropped at least maybe 20%. And since then has really fluctuated. So it's been, it's been almost a little bit confusing where we're trying to test the waters and say, you know, is it going to be okay? Is it not going to be okay? Um, but really just thinking about how can we adapt and how can we help our, our customers adapt? Because we do work in this, you know, the brand space and the digital space and we need to help brands really show up. So it's been a bit of a wild ride and absolutely nothing that we had expected for what 2020 would actually be like. And as we wrap up the, the pre-COVID segment, can you name like three quick, like tangible things that you do when you're building a brand? Like what are the, what are the services that you are offering? Like, if, if, like when you point at a company, you're like, hey, I helped them with, what are some of the things that you would point at? So the number number one would be just brand strategy and brand identity. So really kind of creating a brand from the ground up or rebranding. And then the other side of that is a go-to-market. So that's your social media, PR, uh, brand campaigns is the other side of the business. And that's where we work with some of the larger brands like Wix and Adidas and some of these uh, kind of larger scale brands. Uh, Household so names, little, right? Exactly. We've got both sides of, of business. Gotcha. And with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to the bulk of the show, the mid-COVID segment. But of course, before we get there, we're going to do the the guest unsponsor of the show, where you tell us about a company that, is, that produces uh, an awesome product run by awesome people and probably doesn't have the budget to advertise on super kick-ass podcasts like ours. So with that, uh, who, is this, who is today's show not brought to us by? Today's show is not brought to us by Many as One. Many as One is actually a nonprofit that is focused on creating digital first campaigns to serve the front lines. So uh, right now they're working on serving the front lines of uh, hospitals for COVID and then also the front lines of protests to keep them safe and healthy. I I love that even your unsponsor is like the most like ethically easily supportable like just making the world a better place. You're you're too good, Willow. You're too good. Uh, I feel like you you strategized this podcast be beforehand. <laughs> Applied the tricks of the trade. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the we'll get to the post COVID. It's uh, you'll hear more about many as one. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get to the mid-COVID. So March first happens. You're in New York City. Yep, still not, in New not, York. Okay, not traveling abroad. Uh, you still have an office space. What did you, you said? You were starting to see things be, uh, maybe earlier than most uh, most Americans probably put it on their on their radar, just because we have a way of of otherizing. Uh, problems like this that it's like oh well that's happening in Africa or that's happening in China or that's happening like that's a them thing that's not us like like we're the most privileged country ever so uh, you happen to see have like a little more foresight perhaps than the rest of us because you were traveling abroad 
but what were some of the first signs that you started to see? Uh, in, and then how did they uh, start to manifest themselves in terms of impacting your business? The first thing I could think of when you're, when you're describing this is just the subway and how quickly it became a little unclear if anyone should be taking it because just to even to get to work in the morning in New York is a little bit more of a hurdle than anywhere else, right? We, we don't own a car. Um, so just starting to take Ubers to be more cautious, but also knowing that that's not, you know, ultimately sustainable for everyone either was one of the first kind of early signs. I think we, you know, we didn't see a ton of other companies reacting as quickly as we did. And we were, we were shut down within, within weeks and working from home. Now we also have the ability to do that really easily because we are, we, everything we do is online primarily other than photo shoots and, you know, some video work, but we were able to move really quickly and our team is very used to being remote. Uh, and they're, they're good at it. So we were really blessed in that way that everyone was able to quickly adapt and just uh, head home. So as far as seeing the business uh, impacts, you started to see like the, okay, you, you see the, the pandemic starting to take hold in New York City, in Brooklyn, and and basically you know, on the local news, I, I assume you're like, boom, hospital beds are filling up, uh, what's happening, great. Okay, easy adjustment. Everyone work from home. It's not like you're operating heavy machinery in a factory. You're everyone take your laptops home, and we'll just do the things that we normally do, but from our own home. Great, no commute time. Problem solved. Uh, did you see an, a business impact in terms of the way that some of your? And I'm interested to hear if there was any difference between the way that the larger or smaller companies were reacting. Um, so were you starting to see people? hold back or were they more aggressive, less aggressive? How, what was the business impact on you in that, in that first portion of COVID? It was very different between the, the different sizes of clients. So I think that's a kind of an astute observation for some of oh, our smaller, some of our smaller startups that we work with really had a tough time initially really with just the uncertainty and not really knowing if they needed to act early to make sure that their business wasn't really impacted from our perspective. That was, you know, a place where we were really just able to kind of slow down and try to show up as a partner and say, you know, what do you need right now and how can we help you get there? In some cases that was just that they needed out of a contract. In other cases, it was just that they needed to delay um, you know, some deliverables or shipments or product. So it kind of ranged, but I would say overall, it was just really stressful for people. And as a partner that works that closely with individuals, it's always going to be something that you kind of, you, you feel in some way. I was, I was joking uh, actually with someone about it a while ago that I needed to get a coaching license. I'm like, I turned into a coach overnight and I didn't know it. And it's just been one fun, funny result of COVID. Yeah, I, I hear you. I feel like a lot of my sales calls now take about five times longer than they normally would. Because especially for me, where I'm interacting with a lot of like small, really, truly small business owners, like, you know, owners of one cafe or like one juice bar, we'll spend where it's usually like, hey, do you need some recurrence? No? Okay, great. Call you later. Now it's like, bro, how is it? How are things for you? And it's like, oh man, let me tell you, you know? And it's like this whole uh, like venting uh, kind of this like cathartic experience that just goes so much beyond nor like the, the dollars and cents of the, of the, of the normal exchange. Right. It's like you're, you're, you're humanizing with each other. You're yeah, it turns into founder therapy, <laughs> founder therapy. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's, that's uh, alternate title of number, number two for this podcast, founder therapy. That is, oh God, you are so good. No wonder, no wonder you get paid the big bucks by, by Wix and Adidas and, and who knows what other amazing ethical, ethically strong oh companies are supporting. You. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is interesting though, what you're saying about founders because there there's just stress coming from every angle you know whether it's a small juice shop or uh, a company that needs to raise money and lock in funding in order to exist we saw kind of the same reaction on all fronts where i think people were just really uneasy and uncertain about where things would go uh, we we just did our best to kind of alleviate that stress so one of the things we did was uh worked with 
a partner, uh, the new company, and built a program called BYOB, which stands for Bring Your Own Background. So we tried to make it fun. And it's a Zoom demo day. So we brought together founders that were raising, but maybe having trouble getting access to capital during COVID, and then our, ne our network of investors, and going to put them together to create these BYOB experiences that are rooted around different topics. Our first one was in healthcare, health and wellness. And one of our uh, female founders in that cohort was able to close her round, which was, was pretty incredible. So for us, it was a little bit of just kind of leaving the uncertainty behind and saying, okay, we're in this moment now. What can we do? How can we show up differently? And how can we maybe try to think about solving these problems? Because we're not going to be able to help everyone, uh, but we are. there are some programs that we can set up structurally to have some sort of meaningful impact. That is such a metered and logical and, and polished and, a, and astute, to borrow your own term, approach to things. I'm, I feel like... I feel like small businesses in particular, probably it's like a, it's a very big decision as a small business, like where you spend your dollars, right? Like it's one thing if you're Google and you're like, we have infinite infinity dollars who like we can spend them on whatever we want essentially. And if you're a small business, you know, where you're spending every dollar really matters. And so if you're going out and you're hiring a high end, uh, you know, creative agency, that's a big decision for them, right? And when something like COVID comes along and potentially severely impacts your revenue, you have to reassess where you're going to spend those dollars. But when when there is something like a pandemic that is a and and the whole world is essentially reassessing all you know daily habits, where you're spending, all of these things, your brand's identity is more important than ever. So it's kind of this like uh, damn, do you, damn if you do, damn if you don't thing where you need to spend the money to help create this, this uh, brand that is adapting to the, to the rapidly evolving world. But at the same time, you might be severely uh, negatively impacted on your revenue and not be able to afford said person, you know, the, 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 that agency, the scout lab, if you will. Did you see a lot of that with your smaller brands? I, I yeah, with the smaller brands or or even with the bigger brands? So with the smaller brands, we definitely saw some of that, um, you know, companies that had to either try to figure out how to delay payment or delay getting fundraising, at which point we kind of really just try to approach it as a partner more so than a service provider. One of the things that we've done that I think has helped us during this time that we actually set up over a year ago is a venture arm to our business. So we work when we are working with these much smaller clients because they can't always afford that uh, price tag in the beginning. We'll work with them on a equity basis. So work with for equity and cash. The reason why that's really nice is well, first of all, it's, we're investing in founders that we truly believe in and that we're really aligned with. And so we can, can kind of see where their business is going. And we think that it's, you know, a, a strong place for us to show up, but we're also able to give a little bit more of our time and be more flexible and know that, you know, there's going to be ups and downs of the business, but ultimately we're kind of in it with them and we are going to wait it out. And so right. I think that approach has been, uh, it's been good. It, it's interesting because you never think that you make these decisions. You never think you're going to be in a scenario like a global pandemic when these, these things happen. But it's been a it's been a valuable approach to be able to show up and really kind of treat people as people rather than just see them as customers. And I think that's where maybe a lot of people potentially go wrong, even the brands that are, you know, showing up for their customers in a way that's offending people or, you know, kind of misstepping because they're not saying the right thing or doing the right thing. They're just not viewing them as people. They're viewing them as customers. Yeah. It seems like yet again, you've done something that's just genius for so many reasons. And I feel like I'll just list off a couple that come to mind uh, by, but by taking on a little bit of equity and just real quick, just to clarify, when you say you're investing them, you're investing your, your time and your services. Are you actually, are you investing financially as well or, or just with services? With services, uh, which directly cost us a dollar amount. So. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, 
but you're you're not like signing checks to them. You're you're just giving tens of thousands of dollars in service and then getting paid in equity. So exactly. in the long term, and what's so great about that is then you, truly your you align your success aligns with their success. So you're incentivized to like do the absolute best job. And I feel like that's something that if everyone had you know aligned incentives as a as a, a, a vendor customer relationship, I don't know the world would be a better place. But I was going to ask, is there an average tenure of relationship, of business, of a business relationship that you have with your, with your clients? Is it usually like a, Hey, we're going to do this for one month or six months or ongoing recurring. Is there an average there? We've seen, we've had relationships that lasted, you know, two years on the longer end and then maybe six months on the shorter end. So it'll really just depend. Uh, we see, we find that after two years, we've usually done a significant body of work. And that's usually a good time to potentially go our separate ways. But certainly it could it could be that we would work with a, a brand for longer than that. We've only been around for three. We're going on year four now. So it's a pretty long time horizon when you think about the, the span of our lifetime. Right. But I would definitely say I was their average time working with someone is around you know, six months. And have you seen as a result of COVID, as you can best judge, a drop in business? Was there, was there a valley in the first few months of COVID? And has that, I think you mentioned the, the number 20% earlier. Was that all in one month? And you've since recovered, or or how? What what was the the biggest financial impact, and, and in timing as well? So I would say it was within the probably April May is probably the largest. Knock on wood. We what we saw was there were a lot of conversations that were happening that just got halted, and that's where I think you start to see how COVID is impacting things because you'll be kind of pretty far along in the process, ready to go with the company. And then they're just not able to uh, actually sign on because of the uncertainty in the market, which makes total sense. So as that starts to kind of lift, what we're seeing is, you know, brands are getting, I think, more and more comfortable and ready to kind of reinvest in brand. Where we have seen an uptick is because we have the arm of our business that does focus on social media and PR and more of the digital side of things, that is where every single brand really needs to show up right now. So if they haven't done that well in the past, they're to the point where they realize the digital revolution isn't coming. It's already here and we need to catch up. So that part of our business and making sure that our business is diversified has been really important for us to uh, be able to jump through all of these types of hurdles. Yeah. I was just on, I was actually talking to a, a, a mentor of mine today uh, and my favorite professor, from school and he was basically saying oh i was laying out for him all all of the the problems that i'm going you know uh, enduring right now and obviously that's what you do with a mentor and he was basically saying oh you know have you switched can you switch can you make that that like full pivot to basically being ecom and i'm like yes absolutely that's what we're trying to do but so is literally everybody Right. And so what does that do? That drives up AdWords, that drives up the cost of basically doing business online. And so how do you cut through all of that madness? But seriously, Willow, help me. How do I cut through all of that madness? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, the, it's the golden question. You can answer that as much as you want. Thinking about where to show up right now is and how to show up, I think, in a meaningful way. So oh. To, to go back to meeting is one for a moment. I think this is a good example of being able to kind of cut through that noise a little bit. We early on, again, as we started to see the numbers rising in New York and the hospital that's being pulled, you know, trucks pulled up outside of hospitals was uh, pretty startling. Just the, the, the really quick change and intense change that we saw in New York. We had a text thread with some of our other friends that are also founders in New York just asking the question, you know, how can we help? What can we do? Uh, we all have like very specific skill sets. So we just wanted to come together to create something. We decided to create a digital first campaign, uh, working with influencers to raise money for the front lines by just posing the question, will you take a photo in your scrubs? And then just ask for, or 
post a photo in your scrubs, make a donation and show solidarity with people in their scrubs. This is in, at the time when social distancing and quarantine was still a big question of like whether or not people should be doing it. And to us, that was very obvious. It was like, yes, stay inside. Have you seen Italy? Have you seen China? Like, let's just do this right. Um, and that campaign actually, you know, within the text thread, my co-founder Caitlin came up with the tagline and the concept within, I think, three minutes or something insane. And we all just agreed around, oh, sure, let's do it, uh, which is not how any brand campaign ever goes. So I was like, this is maybe the best thing ever. No debate. And within just a few weeks, we had raised $160,000 and had over 80 million impressions. So it legitimately went viral because people really resonated with it. People wanted, the one, they wanted to give back at a time when they didn't know how. Two, people wanted to be a part of something that they could identify with and that they can see themselves in. So this kind of idea of like asking people to take a photo of themselves is a really big driving factor. And then, you know, making sure that your message is lining up with the time and what people need in whatever space that is. Uh, are some of the key things and ways that you can still become a, a meaningful part of the conversation, even when it is really noisy. It's definitely still possible. Such a good answer. You're, you're too polished. How much did you rehearse for this? I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can just tell that you're like, you're, you're speaking from the heart. So it's like, you know, everything you're saying is just so authentic and it, uh, it, it's like honey to the, to the listener's ears. So you made this, I, I love that you used uh, you know, such a great cause as, an ex, as, your, as your case study. We're moving forward you know, in, in the timeline here, when uh, BLM started to, to take on more and more, I don't know, more prominence, I guess, yes. And I, I don't mean the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, I'm talking Black Lives Matter here, BLM. So I'm curious, have, you, have your services been enlisted at all? By bigger companies to help uh, as they decide how to define their brand in in the the age of the you know uh, posting posting a black square or uh, amplifying uh, you know black voices has, has there been any any uh, business as a result of that? Good question. We haven't had a ton of direct business from that per se, but we have acted kind of proactively on behalf of our, our clients that we do have to make sure that they're aligned and showing up in a meaningful way. One of the biggest things that these brands face or any brand faces right now is the risk of performative allyship. And like you mentioned, the black square. And that's mm -hmm. something that we are avid in making sure that does not, <laughs> does not fly or happen in our house. Um, we're at a little bit of an advantage because we only work with brands that we believe are truly purpose-driven in the first place. So we don't have a, a lot of those brands going fully rogue on us, which I know that a lot of agencies do right now. So uh, God bless them. That must be a, a bit of a tough one. But either way, no matter you know how aligned you are as a brand, these are always really sensitive topics. And it's hard to, to figure out how to show up in these moments, especially show up quickly, which is what they need to do. Right. I think sitting back and not making any sort of statement or helping in any way isn't really an option anymore. As we kind of move into the 21st century, it is very clear that Gen Z and millennials want brands that are aligned with their values and that are showing up in a way that is actually authentic and they can smell the bullshit. So you'll see like brands getting ripped apart left and right and Honestly, it's it. I think that's okay. I I'm I believe that ultimately brands in general are gonna really have to learn that this is a new type of consumer that they're dealing with, and the way that business was done in the past just doesn't really fit into this kind of digital world in the same way. Um, so maybe sweeping things under the rug or thinking that things aren't transparent, just making a statement or you know a black square without actually having a meaningful plan or helping in some sort of way isn't going to work anymore. And when you say performative allyship, the thing that comes to mind uh, first is the, the, the Kylie Jenner handing a Pepsi to a police officer uh, in full riot gear at some, some nameless uh, riot or, or pr probably peaceful rota protest. 
uh, in that Pepsi commercial, which was, you know, in a funny way, ahead of its time almost <laughs> in like a, a weird, twisted, backwards way. It's interesting you bring that thought example. My co-founder and I, when we met, at, we actually met at a wine bar. On a, we got set up on a friend date. Please don't tell me this was also your commercial. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, that, that commercial, we talked about that commercial at, at length. It was one of the things that I think really did inspire us in a bad way. I don't know. It, it motivated us because we looked into the world and said, they are spending so much money to offend literally everyone and not the right people. And it's just horrifying that they're appropriating Black Lives Matter. It's not okay. Uh, and so that was actually one of the early conversations that we had and looking at how not to do it and knowing that there's so much more that is yet to be done. I almost see it as there was this kind of second wave of brands that are D2C. So you had the Away, you have the Casper, you have these inherently digital brands that are showing up. But now what we're seeing is that third wave of brands that are, yes, inherently digital, but they are also, they have some sort of purpose embedded in them. And they're actually really aligned with their supply chain. They're aligned with their messaging. They're aligned with their customer in a much bigger way. And those are the brands that I think are going to win out over the Pepsis, over, you know, any, any brand that is showing up in a way that doesn't feel meaningful. Do you think that the old adage that if you try to appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one, do you think that is just becoming more true than ever as we have more and more information at our fingertips and, and, you know, brands are expected to be posting on social media, you know, daily that they have to show their true colors more. And as a result, they're going to have more diehard fans and fewer perhaps overall fans. What do you think about that statement? I believe in it. I I do think that we're kind of we're in this this post post political politically correct world where it is important to have very clear values and that your customers care and they want to know and they will be aligned with you around it. It's a maybe a bit of a controversial perspective to take, but I think it's just a matter of time before that is just really obvious to anyone. And if they aren't already kind of waking up to that, then they probably will be within the next decade. Because ultimately you need you need those few super fans. You need those people to truly love and champion your product. And that's really how it's gonna take off anyway, kind of at that grassroots level. Um, and you see this again and again, that having a strong brand, a community around your brand is one of the saving graces when it comes to um, any sort of upset in the economy or any sort of, um, you know, something like a pandemic, having a strong community is what will ultimately be able to carry you through. I just heard on, I think it was on Planet Money, actually, one of my favorite podcasts. They were talking about how boycotts don't work. And the reason why is because there's a 24-hour news cycle and basically customers can be can be mad at you for, you know, one day, but the next day they're literally just like, the, there's so much information out there that they forget who they're mad at and just go right back to their old consumer habits. So a boycott really doesn't actually have any meaningful impact. Do you think that that will continue to be true? For example, and I feel like this is hyper relevant because of the Goya controversy. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, hashtag yeah. Goya way, uh, which I guess is the largest uh, Latinx owned company in the US. And the the CEO just had a press conference uh, basically next to President Trump and was saying, hey, this guy's such a builder and basically al allying himself with President Trump and, you know, who has been obviously very outspoken uh, in not a great way uh, <laughs> against, uh, you know, really any type of migration, uh, you know, calling people uh, all, a litany of names. And so there was a whole story basically about how there will be a boycott against Goya. Will that actually have a meaningful impact? Will that type of thing grow in size and impact moving forward as we're in this post-politically correct economy? I guess I'll answer that in, that in two parts. The first is that any sort of boycott and or cancel culture will negatively impact a brand and their bottom line. Absolutely. Will it do it long term? I think that's still a little bit 
to be determined. We'll, we'll see how long these kind of cycles last and how long people do hold out. I think that people are becoming very, very intentional with the way that they want to spend their money because they understand now more than ever that a dollar spent is a vote in the direction of what you want to see happen in the world because so many of these brands are involved at many different levels in everything that's going on. And that's where I think it's just becoming very clear. And again, we go back to this idea of transparency. Young consumers are very savvy. You know, we, we see what's happening. We're paying attention and we're willing to spend our money in places where we want to see it used. And so I think that can be potentially the most terrifying thing uh, to, to these larger brands and the boys of the world. But with that said, I also think that cancel culture can be toxic as well. I don't think that that is necessarily the right answer or a long-term sustainable answer, but it certainly is one way to get the message across. By the way, I, I love that you said that you were going to answer that in two parts because I totally am in like the worst habit of asking two part, three part, four part questions. And it's just because I just find this like, th especially this topic in particular, so interesting because I've always felt like anecdotally that uh, the answer to the question, do boycotts work? I've always felt like, well, it's, it seems, it's so counterintuitive. It seems like it should be working. Right. But in, but every time something like this happens, whether it's the, the Kylie Jenner Pepsi thing or it's the Goya CEO next to Trump thing, there's always the, the story that comes out the next day. Hey, people are going to boycott, but it's not going to matter because people are going to just resume their old habits. So it, it's yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see how that trend continues to to evolve. And if that if that same uh, story, that that same result uh, resultant story that gets, you know, trotted out every single time, if that holds true moving forward. I actually believe it will be less of a trend in the future and more of a long lasting fundamental shift that we see. Instead of just seeing people, you know, canceling left and right, we'll see people maybe making more thoughtful decisions or more educated decisions, especially as people start to lose trust, more and more trust in the media you find that people are becoming a little bit more educated in how to look for sources, how, what kind of media sources to trust. I think the same thing will go for brands. People want to know where things are made. They want to know who they're made by. They want to know, you know, where the founders of the company are putting their money, you know, everything from whether it's political to whether their product is ending up in the ocean and they are greenwashing their ad campaigns. Right. So right. I, yeah, that would be my hope is that it's it's less of a trend and more of just a fundamental shift in the way that we consume. So almost as if consumers, the, the same way that you don't want performative allyship in brands, it's almost like that will trickle down to individuals who will be less performative and more dedicated to whatever their purchasing decisions are going to be. And one other little like, metaphor I just thought of was when you were saying voting with your dollars. Voting with your dollars is essentially an election with no campaign finance laws. There's no maximum donate personal donation. You can vote as many times as you want and frequent, you know, whatever establishment or whatever online e-commerce store as much as you want and continue to vote as many times as you want for whatever brand that you want to support. Wow. Yes. I love that. Because if you think about it, if you're, if, let's say you're canceling one brand, what that actually means is that that dollar is going somewhere else and it's going somewhere more intentional. Right. It's like you get to not only subtract a vote from, from the candidate you don't like, you also get to take that vote and you get to add other votes as many you get to stuff the ballot box for someone else if you want. Exactly. You get to support small business or potentially a large business, wherever you want to put that. But it's it's making a conscious decision and saying, I'm paying attention, essentially. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel like we it's time to, to move to kind of this last segment. But as always, we've kind of already started to evolve into it, which is the post-COVID, which was the name of the segment when we first started the show. But truly, it has no meaning now because what is post-COVID? Will there ever be a post-COVID? I don't know. I'm pretty sure this new normal is here for here to stay. So with that being said, let's bring it back to your business just for a few minutes here about what adaptations you've made. I, I, I'm really getting tired of the word pivot because I feel like it's all we ever hear all of the time now. But 
basically, how have you adjusted to to new normal? Period. Question mark. How have you adjusted? So many ways. I would say the the one of the first things that comes to mind is my co-founder and I chose to, you know, reduce our pay kind of early on, knowing everything that was happening, and that's been an impact. And to your point, there is no post-COVID. Where will that shift? Uh, you know, it has yet to be seen. But really thinking about this new space where we're all kind of working from home and still need some sort of social connection has been a really interesting thing. We've seen that with our clients too. We'll have, a, we'll have digital happy hours with our clients and kind of like bring them into the family fold as well, knowing that some some founders are at home alone. Some founders have massive teams. Like there's, there's just really wide range of, I think, the way that people need support right now. So that's definitely shifted our business. For me personally, we decided to move out of Brooklyn, which is a really, really tough decision because I love New York so much. And of course, the team is there, at least the majority of the team. But ultimately, we knew that things weren't going to be back to normal for a very long time and wanted to be closer to nature. Our our one bedroom loft in Brooklyn was so, I mean, the, the tall ceilings were beautiful, but then the second that you have two people working in a tiny space and you can just hear each other all day. Uh, it just became really unsustainable and not productive. So we immediately were like, okay, we, we gotta, we gotta fix this and are back in the Northwest now, which feels really good to just be in a space where, you know, I can go on a walk and be in the trees and be in a bit of a quieter space, but then also, you know, have the space for an office. So that's been a really big life change because that's definitely not where I saw this year going at all. Um, the last my co-founder and I talked about uh, an office back in what March, we were intending on getting a new office space in the Lower East Side. Spoiler alert: that hasn't happened, um, and probably won't happen. Not for the rest of the year. No. Right. Right. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe prices will drop so low we just won't be able to resist. But ultimately, I think it's just it's not smart to be back in a space or, or ask to ask employees to be back in a crowded space for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Then as we again kind of move towards the towards the end of this show here and we and we start to think about what we can do to move forward not only now but also to like prepare for the next thing. Is there anything that you would do differently next time? Or oh boy, I just told you I, I like to ask two part questions. Is there anything you would have done that you, that you would have done differently knowing how things have played out now? Because it seems from like an outsider who, you know, has basically been talking to you for 45 minutes, that you've done everything right. So Tell me there's something that you've done. God, thank no, you. I mean, seriously, you're like, wow. yeah, we, we made all these adjustments. We, we immediately decreased our pay. Like we got PPP. We, we made these adjustments. We moved across the country. We closed our office space down. It just seems like you made, it was like, check, 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 check. Okay. Give me something that you would have done differently. Ooh, okay. Good question. It's funny to, to reflect on it though, because you almost, it almost feels like it's all a dream. Even talking to you about it, especially mm -hmm. being in New York in the middle of it all. It was, it was heavy. The energy of it was heavy. All of it was just really, really intense experience on every level. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna have to think about this for a second. How about if we if we reframe it as is there is there a way that you plan to conduct your business moving forward to be better prepared for what people are now saying is inevitable to repeat itself? So, one this is actually something that my co-founder and I had had a lot of discussions around over the last few years. Uh, we talked about, you know, what would we do if there was a downturn in the economy? Her, her parent, her mom is an entrepreneur and made it through 2007. And so she had, she kind of grew up in that environment and had a lot of insight into what that experience might be like. You know, she and I both were just coming out of college when the financial crisis hit as well. So we're a little bit primed for this in a kind of a strange way and had had kind of at length conversations about you know should we really refocus the business and really focus in on one product offering or should we expand ultimately we decided to expand and diversify which has been the best possible thing doing that actually can be a, a bit tougher on the business because it does come at a cost but ultimately 
it can save you in a scenario like this. So I'm grateful that, that we have done that. And I think we would only continue to make sure that we're working in different types of, with different types of companies. So for example, CPG, and you, uh, you have a CPG company, so you totally understand this, but CPG was hit really hard. Um, a lot of industries were hit really hard and tech was one is one of the industries that we've worked in historically that we have early on said we're not going to specialize in one specific industry and because of that i think that's why we're able to still be afloat right now honestly of course you you saw it coming before any of us and we're already diversified willow what i feel like i feel like this is like that movie back to the future where the guy goes back in time and has like this this betting book this like the sports records book and is able to just go back and place all these bets because he knew what was going to happen and then he turns into this built like multi you know millionaire bazillionaire basically because he has all the answers ahead of time i feel like you had the answers to the test in the way that you've conducted all of your business over the last like six months while the rest of us are struggling to like reinvent and and find new ways to exist and i get that like like you said, your company was, you know, predispositioned to succeed in an environment like this, perhaps more than someone who's manufacturing a physical good where you're already conducting most of your business uh, online. But still, my, 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 my proverbial hat is off to you. I feel like you've just done such a good job. Like you're, you're an inspiration, Willow. No, I mean, we, we've been fortunate. Absolutely. We have still had to make cutbacks, and that's always tough. I mean, anyone that has a business and understands what it's like to go through financial uncertainty and have to either, you know, lay people off or have those tough conversations with customers or, you know, some of those hard days knows that it's just kind of part of the price that you pay for the freedom that you have when you you get to wake up and own your own business, but it, it that also does come at a price. Um, there are definitely some scenarios that maybe I would have tried to get out of sooner had I seen them coming, but ultimately I think I just feel, I do feel pretty lucky right now with the type of business that we have during this time. Did you have to lay anybody off? We did. We had, um, we did have a layoff, which was unfortunate, but ultimately, I mean, as you know, something that is just powerful for the course. Yeah we really have to evaluate the business and say how again how are we diversifying the what we're doing in the way that we're doing it in a way that we know that we can make it through any sort of downturn that's happening yeah one of the things in the the cancel culture and i feel like i'm i'm extra sen- hypersensitive to this and I, as a as a small business owner myself and i feel like most probably are when people say I think it was it was some airline basically, and they were going to lay a bunch of people off. And I'm not saying that all of their decisions were the right ones, you know, over the course of the years. But I'm just saying in this specific instance, they were saying, okay, this company is going to lay a bunch of people off. We we shouldn't uh, patronize their their business. We we sh- we should boycott them. And my thought is, if you if your solution to a company laying people off in order to survive is to boycott them then you're essentially ensuring that the rest of their, like if if they laid off 15% of their workforce, you're essentially ensuring that the remaining 85% is going to be laid off because if no one frequents their business, then they don't survive. And again, I'm not saying like, oh, woe is the Fortune 500 giant company that buys back stock all the time and like does nothing to, to save up. Obviously, there are like tons of other decisions that could have been made differently. But in this specific instance, I feel like this is it might be a little bit too quick to jump the gun on the on the canceling and, and voting quickly in an uninformed way. It doesn't even it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Right. If, if you're if you're mad about a, a business laying people off and that is the problem, then clearly there's something else happening with the business that needs attention and boycotting them isn't necessarily going to fix it, to your point. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's not, I would say, an easy time to to be a business owner, especially a small business owner, because every single second counts for something. But it's nice to know that, you know, there's people like you out in the world that are that are fighting the good fight and telling stories and helping people kind of learn about what are what are the different potential paths to take in a crazy time like this because no one knows the answers. Oh, people like me, people like you. Come on, I, I would sell a room to anybody right now 
Are you kidding me? You're you're the one <laughs> you're the one setting the setting the bar so high, Willow. Uh, come on. All right, we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up here. Uh, last question, as always, how can our nines of listeners find you, support you, both financially as a or or professionally, I should say, and then also in case they aren't, you know, the owner of a brand that's looking to to improve its public image, but they just like you and they like what you stand for. How can they support you as an individual? Referring us to anyone that you know that needs good brand support, social media, PR is always the best way to help. And what else could people do? Follow us on social. That's always a quick and easy one. How do they do that? You can head to Instagram and follow us at ScoutLabCo. Got it. Go to www.instagram.com. Dot com. <laughs> Scout Lab Co. Got it. Uh, and then if so, if yeah, if they're if they're just an, an individual, they and they want to support the easiest way: Instagram, follow, like, refer to friends. Exactly, refer to friends. Uh, you know, there's I think there's always an opportunity to connect with with good people that are that are building things. Regardless, like I said, we do BYOB, we do the demo days. We've got a lot of different kind of events going on that keep things interesting while everyone is still at home. So uh, following along is, is always fun to see what we're up to next. And is many as one still running? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Um, which that was my, my little unsponsor, but that is definitely the other way that someone can support is by heading over to many as one and making a donation or giving that a follow as well. Love it. Uh, Willow, you're, you're an inspiration and I feel like I'm going to listen to this again, just to, to, again, to, to study from and figure out what, what we can be doing better. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This was fun. Thank you to my guest, Willow Hill. Check out her brilliant work at scoutlab.com. My unsponsor of the show is Rattle, the first virtual brainstorm platform for solopreneurs. Starting a business is always hard, but doing it alone is nearly impossible. So if you could use a sounding board of other motivated entrepreneurs who really truly understand the stresses and limitations inherent to starting a business, check out getrattle.com. Speaking of .coms, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes and updates. But more importantly, go there to tell me who I should interview next and or to suggest unsponsors aka an awesome company run by awesome people producing an awesome product. So uh, if you or your amazing child or friend or family member or stranger you admire from afar started a really cool company that deserves a, that deserves a shout out, tell me. Send me an email at smallbizgoneviral at gmail.com. I would be ever so grateful if you took 30 seconds or so to leave a five-star review and, probably more importantly, shared this episode with a friend or three. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for use of their song Geronimo and soundbible.com for some sound effects. My website looks professional because of my sister Christina and her creative design agency, Pasty Design. All stats and stories today come from worldometer.com, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Morning Brew, Robin Hood Snacks, Statista, 538, and NPR. Someday this will all be over. Until then, stay safe, stay distant, and wear a freaking mask. From my windowless office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and produced before work hours, this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back with a quick bonus segment. This is a lightning round where I'm going to ask our amazing guest, Willow, just a few questions about what it's like to be an entrepreneur. So, Willow, what is your favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Go. I just love being able to really focus my energy and working on the things that I'm I'm passionate about and getting the opportunity to uh, yeah just just wake up and and be able to choose what I'm what I'm doing. What is your least favorite part about being an entrepreneur? I think it's just the financial ups and downs and uncertainty can be quite nerve-wracking and take a little while to really get used to. How how do you kind of treat it as a wave and kind of try to surf instead of just getting swallowed under by some sort of fear. Good surfing metaphor to the to the podcast host in San Diego. Common, common misconceptions about your business. From the outside, I think owning a business looks like it would be something that is glamorous when in reality, at least in the beginning, you really have to be the type of person that will just roll up your sleeves and do any sort of level of the work. 
and you can't really be above above that. In like 30 seconds, tell us everything we need to know about creating a positive brand. Ooh, this is maybe the most fun question ever. When you're building a brand, the one of the most important things to think about is who is your who is your customer and how are you showing up meaningfully for them and how are you serving them in a way that's potentially bigger than just your product. So rather than starting with how do you want to sell what you have to give, uh, starting really reverse engineering that and saying what is the white space within you know this individual's life and how can I really help fill in a gap to solve a problem for them in a bigger way. That's how you make yourself ubiquitous. That's how you make yourself something more meaningful than just a commodity or some sort of product on a shelf and move into the space where you own a part of their mind share and a part of something that they actually want to have to be a kind of staple in their life. You're amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you. For real this time, goodbye.